If you enjoyed the channel and our video content and would like to support us, you can do this in a couple of ways. You can sign up to our Patreon site which is a monthly subscription to one of our four tiers, each giving you something different from early access interviews up to exclusive unseen footage. There's also the option of a one-off donation via PayPal which allows you the option to donate an amount of your choice. Both options really help to keep this channel going and to continue putting out regular content for you good folk. So please take a look at aircurrentreview.tv forward slash donate and I thank you in advance. Thank you and enjoy. Star Baby, then you transitioned onto the Strike Eagle. How did this happen? Oh, luck of the draw. So what happened is that the F4 was winding down and we knew we were going to go out of service by the summer of 1996. And so you suddenly had to find a place to put all the pilots in EWOs. And the personnel center handed six EWO slots to the squadron commander, Jim Yukin, and said, give these out. And so I got one of the EWO slots uh, and I got orders to go to Seymour Johnson Air Force Base in February of 96. So about five, four or five months before the squadron shut down. Right. And what were your first thoughts on the Strike Eagle? Because coming from the Phantom, you're like, oh, that's a new toy. I'm not bothered. Or do you think like, right, that's really cool? Oh, I thought it was really cool. And um, I it was even cooler when I got there and started playing with what we call a part task trainer, which is a very limited simulator. It's designed to teach you to do certain tasks. And the one we had was on the radar. And so you could hop in the part task trainer and explore all the radar modes and which display you wanted it on, whether you wanted it color or monochrome. And that was just amazing. I mean, if the radar lived up to the performance of the simulator, and it did, then that was going to be spectacular. Mm -hmm. And uh, the other huge improvement once I started flying was sheepskin seat covers. Well, so I, I, oh yeah, so the ejection wow. seat, uh, the Martin Baker, uh, or sorry, it's not a Martin Baker, the, the Aces 2 seat that's on the, Strike Eagle has a sheepskin seat cover. And the reason it has sheepskin is because it's essentially non-compressible. So it's designed to increase the comfort, but you can't have compressible foam because when the seat goes up the rail and all those sticks of dynamite underneath your seat go off, the foam will, will compress suddenly and your spine will slam against the metal frame of the seat. Wow. So you have to be very careful about the foam. And sheepskin, and we used to make fun. As a weasel guy, I made fun of the Strike Eagle guys. They're wearing their sheepskin, you know, they've got their sheepskin seat covers on. And within two sorties, it was like, yeah, you'll pry my sheepskin out of my cold, dead fingers. <laughs> Brilliant stuff. So you said, like, obviously there were six uh, roles for you guys, but uh, what other types were could you potentially have went on to? Oh, um, really, that was the only fighter left that wasn't also going out that had two seats. So the 111 was going away at the same time we were. So my, my class was half weasel guys and half 111 guys. It's pretty much there was no place else to go stay in a combat aircraft unless you wanted to go into a bomber. And I did not want to go to a bomber. <laughs> So yeah, you, you obviously went to the Strike Eagle, but would if they said, right, you got the, the B-1, would you have been happy with that or would you have done something else, do you think? Oh, I would not have been happy with that. No, 
right? <laughs> uh, no, I mean, it's not that the B-1 guys don't do good work. And when the airplane actually works, it's fairly impressive. But the Wizzo, the, at the time, the offensive systems officer and the defensive systems officer, I mean, they have some neat toys, but they've also got a window that's about that big that allows you to look out the side and check to see if the wing's fallen off yet. And that's just not <laughs> the kind of office I want to work in. Absolutely. So going from the G to the Strike Eagle, was your role as an EWO the same role? Because I always thought like it was just Wizzo. I didn't know there was an EWO role for the, the Strike Eagle. There isn't really. So the only EWO roles in the Strike Eagle community are really the Squadron EWO and the Wing EWO. And I ended up doing both. Uh, but most of the time I'm logging Wizzo time. It was only later when I was the Wing EWO that I was logging EWO time in the Strike Eagle. And so that's kind of rare because there's no electronic warfare gear to actually play with. But there are the electronic warfare systems, and there are other aspects of that with respect to programming, reprogramming, maintenance that the Squadron EWO, or more importantly, the Wing EWO, actually helps take care of. Right, that's new information for me, yeah, so thanks for that, Star Baby. But uh, let's talk about your flying training. Obviously, it was in the U.S., and what were the similarities and the differences from the Phantom? So there were a lot of things that were Phantom-like, and you would expect that because it's a it, it's a McDonnell Douglas airplane. Both are McDonnell Douglas airplanes, and you could see the design philosophy. So it was clear that the Phantom had a big influence on the design of the Strike Eagle, and that there were a lot of improvements. Uh, the cockpit ergonomics was a huge improvement. Multifunction displays were great. Obviously, the radar. Uh, was wonderful visibility, a huge improvement in visibility to the point where I can literally turn around and look over and and look between my tails. Um, and the really, it's it's not an exaggeration to say everything was an improvement, with two exceptions. I actually like the Martin Baker Mark Seven ejection seat better, or I would like it better if it had sheepskin seat covers, <laughs> and. The F-15E does not have a battery. And so it's weird to say, well, what was the, the battery? And in Europe, when you're on alert in a hardened aircraft shelter in the F-4, you could be sitting in the airplane strapped in with the radio on monitoring the alert net. But you cannot do that in a Strike Eagle. You have to have an engine running or external power or something else in order to listen to the radio. The obvious solution is external power. Uh, when you're sitting on alert but those that other than that everything else is an improvement in the strike eagle yeah i can imagine but going through your flying training could the the e pull more than the f4g in terms of g maneuverability speed did you have to get used to that or was that quite natural for you just to go into well the performance is definitely improved you've got a lot more thrust uh even if the engine's uh, less reliable, um, in my view, the Pratt & Whitney's. But you've definitely got a lot more thrust, so you accelerate quicker. The basic empty weight of the aircraft are pretty close, within a 1,000 pounds of each other officially. And so it wasn't. It, it's a much heavier maximum takeoff weight, but the empty airframe is not any heavier. Uh, there, It is a little bit more maneuverable. I mean, it's got that big eagle wing, 
Um, and so even against a, a slatted E could not pull and sustain. It's not necessarily the instantaneous ability to pull Gs that matter. It's the ability to sustain them. And the Strike Eagle definitely had ability to sustain it. But it also had some of the same things that the Phantom had in terms of adverse yaw. When you've got the stick back in your lap, uh, angle of attack limits, you roll with the rudders just like you do with the Phantom. So those were easy to learn because they, it was just, it handled very much like you wished a Phantom would have. Yeah, I've always heard that uh, the Eagle was basically the big brother from the Phantom and it sounds like it was from many people I've uh, talked to. But also, let's talk about the cockpit. You kind of mentioned it. Was it difficult going to a kind of, it was kind of all glass, wasn't it? And the back was a four digital screens. It's four digital screens, and you actually have two hand controllers in the back um, that that have a whole lot of switches, buttons, <laughs> and so on on them, um, some of which are, in fact, all of which are really multifunction. But one of the things you could do is you could configure your cockpit displays the way you wanted them. Mm -hmm. So when I got into the Strike Eagle, you could basically put on each of those four displays, you can put three possible options in there that you can literally scroll through with your thumb and your right hand controls the right two displays and your left hand controls the left two so for example i have on the right monochrome green i have air to air radar and air to ground radar and the targeting pod and i can flip through these those quicker than it took me to say the terms describing them <laughs> and go back and forth and that's hugely handy so literally with just a couple of thumb movements, you can change your displays to what you actually need at the moment. That's a huge advantage. The cockpit was much less cluttered. We did not have 240 some odd circuit breakers. <laughs> uh, we did not have important stuff buried down by our right or left hip. You know, the important stuff was up front and we had good visibility around the ejection seat and, and the towel bar, an actual bar to oh, grab yes. into, as opposed to the F4, which originally had a little hand grip but on the F4G, they put the clock over the hand grip. So they had to to rivet on a couple of handles here and here so you could grab the handle and turn around. Wow. Um, so it was much, the cockpit ergonomics were much better. The cockpit was much cleaner. It looks like, it looks like there's less stuff because there is less stuff. But when you were going through your uh, flying training style, baby, did you fly with any of the guys from the Phantom community? So... There were a handful of instructors who had come out of F4s, but by the time I got to the flying training unit, most of the instructors had grown up in the Strike Eagle, and they were back at the training unit. So in as, as far as my classmates, half of us were F4G guys coming straight out of the G, and half of us were F111 guys, F111Fs, coming straight out of the F111F. And I say half and half. It was one F-117 guy who was coming into the Strike Eagle um, after, you know, coming from the 111 to the to the 117 and then into the Strike Eagle. So that was the 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 way it worked out. And we were a TX course. We were not a B course. So the TX course is the transition course for experienced mm -hmm. aviators. So it's about three and a half, four months long, whereas a B course is six months. Right. And what, was there any mafia there, like, oh, when you go on to this course, like, oh, we're from the Phantom, we're from the, you know, F-111s, or we all just as one at that, at that point? 
No, it was more the students against the instructors was really <laughs> right. how it was. Because the 334th Fighter Squadron, the Eagles, which is one of the Eagle squadrons from the Royal Air Force Second World War, yes. um, the 334th had just transitioned from being an op squadron to a training squadron, and we were their first TX class. And so they had one dry run where they taught a bunch of guys fresh out of flight school, and then they had us. And so we roll in, and there's not a guy among us that has less than 1,000 fighter hours. Yeah. Uh, some of us are pushing 100 combat missions. There's a couple guys with more. Hmm. And so we were not the easiest of students to deal with. Right. And we definitely were not going to accept being treated like we were nuggets. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, that's totally understandable. Absolutely. But uh, let's talk about your time in the UK. So how did you have to, uh, I guess, apply for the post at Lake Neath or were, was it like, here's your orders, that's where you're going? I don't honestly remember. Normally we would do a dream sheet and put our assignment preferences on, but I actually think I showed up at Seymour Johnson knowing I was going to Lake and Heath. Oh, okay, right. So I, and it made sense because, you know, the guys that went, the, the, that I remember went with me from a, um, from the F4G and into Lake and Heath, they, they had a lot of European experience. We were previous NATO guys. I'd been at Spangdalem. Mm-hmm. So we knew we were going and um, it was easy because the important part about knowing you're going to Lake and Heath is the other half of that, which is knowing you're not staying in Seymour Johnson. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So let's talk about your time in the UK. So I'm always fascinated and I've talked to many guys and gals about this. Uh, arriving in the UK, did you know where you were going, where you were going to stay or was it just basically your land and then you figure it out or did you know everything before you were coming over? So the way the military actually does a pretty good job of receiving new people in. So you, you go to the base and you check in and you should have a sponsor who has made some arrangements for you. Uh, but as I recall, my arrangements were made where I had a place to stay in Mildenhall uh, with Royal. Uh, so Royal Air Force Mildenhall, Royal Air Force Lake and Heath are right next to each other. But the town of Lake and Heath um, doesn't even have a traffic light. Whereas the town of Mildenhall does, uh, plus a Thai restaurant and a trailer. So we tended to, Mildenhall had more capacity, and that's where the overflow capacity stayed if there was not room on the temporary lodging in the base. And then you have a housing office that you go to, and there's a list of approved housing. Okay. That, that agreements have been made, and you start making the, the housing tour. So we started looking around. We ended up looking at a a uh, place in the Three Crowns Inn in Ely, which formerly belonged to Oliver Cromwell. Oh, wow. But the kitchen was too small. It had a well in the backyard, and I had an uncovered well with a dead rat in it. And there were things crawling in. There were plants crawling in through the third floor window. So we crossed that one off. Yeah, and there was, yeah. a, there was one that was a 14th century thatched cottage that, unfortunately, the doors were just too short for us um and i wasn't sure we would have had to take a crane and open up all the windows to get the bed onto the second floor so that wasn't going to work so we ended up finding a house that had fallen through the cracks and it didn't show on the computer system but did show on the printouts and we ended up with a great house in the town of wood Ditton, 
in Cambridgeshire, which is east of Newmarket, and you've never heard of it. It's most notable for the three Blackbirds Inn and a water tower. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah, coming to the UK, obviously it wouldn't have been a big shock because obviously you were in Germany, but was there any culture shock, you know, coming back to the, like Europe, as it were? Um, only sort of when we kind of settled down because we we didn't we were in horse country. And so you have a division in Cambridgeshire between horse people and not horse people. And they don't necessarily like each other. Right. Now, as a military officer, I fall into neither group and I can circulate freely between the two of them. Of course. But there was there were aspects of that plus um, Cambridgeshire is, as you get more into the fens, it gets a little bit more rural. And it wasn't the density of population we expected because, of course, of the fens. So you have little roads going off with, uh, we'll loosely call them land on either side of the road. Um, so minor, minor culture issues. Of course, you're driving on the incorrect side of the road, but that's easy to overcome once you get used to it. Absolutely. So, yeah, what squadron were you based with when you came to Lake and Heath? And what was it like when you came onto the squadron? Did, was there a lot of guys and gals you knew there at the time? Or was it like kind of like your first time on a new squadron? It was it was very much like first time on a new squadron. I came into the 494th, the Panthers, and a good squadron. And, you know, it was like coming back to Europe because we were still in the hardened aircraft uh, shelters everywhere, of course, but the, the squadron building is hardened. We're going through armored doors. You know, it's the air is filtered. It looks like any other op squadron in Europe looked at at the time. So that was kind of comfortable. I knew a couple guys had been there before, but when I actually came in to the ops desk, they were waiting for me because my great aunt Dora was having her 90th birthday party a couple weeks after I arrived uh, south and she had been calling like every week to make sure that the squadron knew that I had oh. to be at her 90th birthday party. <laughs> so uh, my relatives had already introduced themselves to the wow. squadron to make <laughs> oh, sure God. I made this. So that was when I checked in. It was like, yes, yeah, so welcome to the squadron. We're happy to see you. And your Dora's birthday party is in two weeks and you're going to be there. How did you find Lake and Heath as a place? Because obviously when I went on base, it felt like a little town. You know, there was like the cinema there, like food outlets. I generally didn't think it was going to be like that. I thought it was like in a little village. It was crazy. Every major base is like that, where you oh, have nice. your base exchange. Lake and Heath has the hospital. My second child was born there. Oh, wow. And they have, uh, you always have a base theater and you've got a gym and you have the child development center. You have the auto hobby shop. I mean, these are all standard. You have the golf course because it's an Air Force base. Of course. These are all standard kind of things. And it is. It's it, in some cases, and this is crazy, some places you can go to an overseas assignment and live essentially in this little American village. And when I was at Spangdalen, there were people who almost never went outside the wire. That's not why I go to foreign countries. That's just crazy. But if you want to live in your little slice of Americana, you can actually do that. Uh, the the issues, the things that were a bit disappointing with England are, of course, the food. <laughs> and 
in some cases, the lack of restaurants, because I'm in horse country, so I'm a more rural area, so you have to maybe get it from pubs. At the time, there were a lot of pubs that didn't want kids. They did not welcome families with children. Yeah. Um, the pub we had in the village of Wood Ditton for the first year, year and a half, was awesome. We actually had a, a, a fresh chef, French chef, uh, who was from the other side of the channel, and the food the food was fantastic. And, of course, it wasn't even remotely British. And then after he left, it turned into more traditional pub and we stopped going. Mm. Um, otherwise, the other thing that's that's a challenge with England is it's gray. And in the winter, the long overcast can really get to you. So the aviators become the only people that see the sun. So we would take off, you know, go up through the clouds. Now we're above the clouds. We see sunlight. Everybody else can go for months without seeing direct sunlight. Mm -hmm. It's the only place I've ever had where I had green stuff growing on my car <laughs> because it's that wet. So those were kind of the beats about Lake and Heath. Now, on the other hand, mm. um, there's plenty of interesting people around. They're generally supportive of a U.S. presence. There's tons of history. I mean, it's hard to get buried in history in the U.S. because it goes back on the East Coast. It only goes back so far. You can go back farther um, Native American settlements, particularly in New Mexico and Colorado. I mean, there's some much older stuff there. But as far as European type settlements, we we you can go back to the 1600s. And as I said earlier, we looked at a house that was built in the 14th century. So castles. I mean, there's an element of coolness there. Great museums. We were we were close to uh, uh, the Imperial War Museum annex. Mm -hmm. Um at Duxford, so there's that. Uh, there were a lot. I mean, I like being in Europe, um, and there were places to travel. What was it like flying in the UK? How did it differ from um, the US? Obviously, weather is a bit of a challenge, but you also have Scotland. And so in at Nellis, of course, it's high desert mountains and so on. At yeah. Seymour Johnson, it is basically swamps and pig farms. <laughs> and the Atlantic Ocean. And, you know, there are some things that you might charitably call hills. But we didn't fly much around East Anglia because you don't want to make jet noise among all your neighbors. So we fly out over the North Sea or you go to Wales for low fly. Or if you have wing tanks, you go to Scotland for low fly. Or you could go up um, to the bombing ranges, you know, south of York uh, in the Wash. And so flying's actually pretty good. You have your own air traffic control because you have London Mill and Scottish Mill, so you have a parallel air traffic control system. The areas are pretty well defined, and you don't have to go into a restricted area to fly tactically. And so there's a chance if you're flying a low level, all you need to do is you need to stay away from the big cities, and it's all on the charts. You need to follow the flow arrows. If you look at ch low level charts in Wales and Scotland, they have one way arrows in yeah. certain areas. Mm -hmm. um, like, for example, Loch Ness, you can only run from north to south uh, coming through Loch Ness because that's the way the flow arrows are drawn. And so there's plenty of good things. There's a good selection of, of targets to practice on. Uh, if you want to pick a bridge, if you want to attack a castle, if you want to attack a distillery or a factory or to practice vertical targets um, against the cliffs of Dover where you're coming in, you're aiming for the Napoleonic-era windows in the cliffs underneath the castle. That gives you a vertical target challenge that you have to deal with. 
So the training environment's good. There's always the Royal Air Force, and so there's occasional opportunities to try dissimilar air combat with them. Uh, there's an electronic warfare range in England, so you go up to spit out them. And like anybody else, uh, you have an experience where everybody that's ever flown near the Royal Air Force has been at their minimum altitudes and had a Royal Air Force fast jet pass under them. So I have to say that the the only thing I would have liked if we'd had a range actually in the UK where we could drop laser guided bombs or live munitions, that would have improved it. We had to fly across the channel to Vlihor's range in in Holland to fly to drop laser guided bombs. And if we wanted to drop live, I think we had to go to Turkey um, mm. or Tunisia, but we never got that together. Spain uh, had already been closed. So it was there were limited opportunities to drop live. So you went if you wanted to drop live, you probably went back to the US. Right, right. And you mentioned DACT there with the REF. So I thought it was would be more of a, a, I guess, a regular occurrence, but apparently not. But I'm guessing at the time, did you ever get jumped by um, F3s, tornado F3s? And how did the Eagle, you know, the Strike Eagle fare against the, the tornadoes? Um, so we did pretty well against the tornadoes because we had better everything, uh, <laughs> um, except, you know, the crews, obviously the Royal Air Force crews are absolutely first class. Um, and we'd fight the tornadoes over the North Sea and I, and, you know, they're still pretty good and they have a long range stick. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I say, you're, it's not like you're going to mop the sky with the F3 guys. That's not going to happen. Um, because it is much more about the human element than it is the machine when you actually get into the fight. But I do remember, you know, one massive turning fight over the North Sea where, you know, we've lost situational awareness. There's airplanes all over the sky. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to figure out we've stuck our nose back into the fight without good situational awareness. And this is before Link 16. So we the only essay we're getting is what the radar and our eyeballs are going to give us. And I'm just about to call the abort when I pick up a guy close. Um, the the pilot auto acts him, so we just the lock slams, the pod sla slams to it, and I'm now suddenly looking at an F3, and I'm about to call the abort because we're about to get shot. And I realize he's giving us a plan form with the wings forward, oh. which means his speed's low. And so I just say, I don't remember who was in the front seat. I just say his wings are forward. Go get him. And we stay in the fight. Uh, so that was, as it turns out, a critical failure of the swing wing is that when you have an optical targeting pod that can get a good look at you for tens of miles, uh, even better now, we can look at your energy state by the wing position. Yeah, so when you were going up and then fights, would you have the tanks on or would you be clean as it were? Oh, we tried to do it without wing tanks. Um, it's very rare that we went up for an ACT fight with with the wing tanks on. If we did that, it's because the weather prevented us from doing anything else we planned that day. And we're probably just doing intercepts. Mm -hmm. um, the rules of engagement also when you're low altitude. So you don't, you know, accidentally happen upon a guy and up, end up in a turning fight on the deck. So the, the low at rules are you can start a fight at low altitude, but once the defender turns 180 degrees, the fight's over. You turn 180, you make your defensive turn, you rock your wings, and everybody goes their separate way. Mm -hmm. Now, mm -hmm. if the defender never sees you, they never rock your wings, you can saddle up behind them and simulate all the shots you want. <laughs> yeah. um, but I don't remember that happening 
uh, really at all. I remember if we bounced guys, they reacted. And if they bounced us, we reacted. Mm-hmm. So with that F3 engagement, uh, would you have a debrief on the phones when you got back? Or was it just you go one way, they go the other? Um, no. So for a DACT like that, where we planned it out, we have a, a mass brief on the phone. We have a debrief. But also over the North Sea, we had the ACMI range. So the aircraft combat maneuvering instrumentation. And so the the Royal Air Force would put up ACMI pods or we would also fight with the Dutch. They would come across the channel and fight in the in the ranges. So in that case, not only do we have a telephone link, but we've got the full playback of all the aircraft motion. Mm-hmm. Uh, now it's even better because it's rangeless ACMI. So um, what you're actually doing at everybody's station is you're pulling a little SD card out of the back of the pod. You're loading it in the system. The systems at your base and the other guy's base all talk to each other, and then you can debrief what went on. And just a side note before we move on, because this is a bit of a, a nerdy question, but, uh, you know, like on these DSCT trips, did you ever, like, meet up and format anyone get pictures? So you were with an F3 or an F16 just to get a snap, or did that never happen? I don't remember doing it. The only time, actually, I've ever done that was with the recce jaguars, the French recce jaguars oh, nice. of Turkey, um, in which we would form up with them, and they would actually fly kind of this this circular path around us with the high-res cameras running. Those are some fantastic shots, and I have them somewhere. I just I haven't digitized them, and I don't know where I've stashed them. They're someplace safe, which <laughs> means that, you know... They're safe, and I can't find them. <laughs> exactly, yeah, of course. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, Star Baby, have you flown on any large exercises with the Strike Eagle, and how did it fare, and was it still, you know, the top jet at the time on these exercises? Yeah, so one of the first early things I got to do um, was go back, and we did a green or a red flag. So I had a, it was fairly early that I was back to the U.S. You know, after getting to Lake and Heath, I'm mission ready, now I'm back in the U.S., and I'm at a red flag again. And I had flown in red flag after red flag after red flag because I was at Nellis for three years, right? Mm-hmm. So I played every red flag that shows up. But now I have a new airplane. And so the purpose of red flag is to get people past all the stupid mistakes you're going to make in your first 10 combat missions. But when you have a new airplane, you have a whole new set of stupid mistakes for you to make. And so, yeah, I flew with Norm Peterson for the red flag, and we did pretty well. We were never bagged by a surface-to-air threat. Now, he he said that I had radar warning dental work. That's not true. It's that I know where every threat simulator on the range is. And so when we got lit up, I knew who it was. that. And so I direct the defense. I know what the system that it's simulating and so we were pretty good. The one time we did get killed was making a stupid mistake that I should have known better. And that was we were leaving the fight. We were out of there. We were east of Belted Peak. We have the restricted, the container off to our right. We're gone. We're headed for Student Gap. Mission's over. And somebody calls for help. And we pitch back into a fight with no Dana Link because we don't have one and no situational awareness. And, of course, we eat a couple long-range air-to-air missiles that as soon as the Red Air guy saw us turning back said, oh, I gotcha, and puts two simulated uh, uh, Alamo Cs into us, and we get called dead. Never pitch back into an air-to-air fight with no situational awareness. You're just going to get killed. And so, sure enough, we were just killed. 
Um, there were occasional other exercises that we flew, just like with the F4 Cameo exercises. Um, but the reality was I spent so much time deploying that a lot of those NATO exercises fell off the priority list mm -hmm. because you were down in Italy um, and or you were in Turkey and you were flying real missions with real packages and not having to assemble training ones. So we still got good training out of those, obviously, but it wasn't the same and you weren't dealing with the same batch of people. Yeah, and obviously, if we can talk about your time in combat, and did you feel ready and prepared when you were going into these live situations? Um, I did, because I didn't necessarily know any better. Um, mm. But when I went into Italy for, you know, after deny flight time period, that was a new area, but it was still, it had been a wild weasel area responsibility, so I was still familiar with the geography and the air defense. When I went in northern Iraq, I was just going back. I knew where the stuff was in northern Iraq. I was very comfortable. Um, there were certain things we didn't know because we hadn't employed enough live munitions and training against you know representative targets because it's not like you can drop a four-story apartment building in training. People get pissed. <laughs> yeah, of course. And so <laughs> uh, there were things that I didn't know, like with the effect of concrete dust on follow-on you know, laser guided bombs or stuff like that. But I was pretty confident. I think I had pretty good reason to be confident. And and I've already got 80 some odd combat missions by the time I transitioned to the Strike Eagle. And the no-fly zones were, even though they were mostly boring, they were still good training environments. And did you feel more comfortable in the Strike Eagle going into like a live situation? No. Oh, Okay. Um, because the situational awareness from the ground threat in the F-4G was so superlative that it is unmatched. And so from an air-to-air -air standpoint, I knew I had better situational awareness air-to-air -air because of the Strike Eagle's better radar, but I knew that my SA on the surface threat was much, much worse, and that's of a greater concern. So I was not more comfortable in the Strike Eagle than I was in the G model. The G model's radar warning gear was just unimaginably good, and it makes a huge difference. Yeah, I can imagine. So when you were flying with the Eagle in this live situations and these uh, combat theaters, were you with uh, paired with the same pilots, or was it mixed? It varied. So normally when I went on deployment, I seem to recall I would generally fly with only a couple of pilots. In the G models, we tended to fix deployment, but we, we didn't necessarily have even numbers of pilots and whizzos on a deployment in the Strike Eagle. And that caused some shuffling. Plus, you know, once I got to be an instructor, you end up moving around more in the Strike Eagle because you're, you're evening out the experience base or you're even doing instructional rides on a combat mission. You can do a guy's flight lead upgrade on a combat mission or something wow. like that. Yeah, so that happens. And um, so and when it got to Allied Force, where we're flying, you know, really seriously, I was sticking with a pilot for a couple of days and switching, you know, another couple of days because maybe I needed to watch over or they thought I needed to watch over like Shooter Wyatt because he's a new first lieutenant. Mm -hmm. He's a great pilot, you know, one of the best first lieutenants I ever flew with. And but I didn't tell anybody he was that good because I was I kind of liked it flying as number two with no additional responsibilities. Just mm -hmm. know where number one is and put the bombs on target. I'm cool. Um, or but they might need a mission commander. And so I end up being swapped out or 
any one of a number of reasons to move around. So in the Strike Eagle, my combat experience was with a whole bunch of pilots. I did not hard crew with any, you know, one guy for any significant length of time. And of course, we're all human as well. So um, say you didn't feel comfortable with a pilot or vice versa, would that make a difference? Or was it just professionalism in the cockpit and that's it? Or would that kind of, I'm not sure about that guy, would that affect the mission, uh, um, you know, preference? One of the skills of a Wizzo is to be fluid. And so your pilots are kind of set in their ways. And so a good Wizzo is able to flow in and fill mm -hmm. in the different gaps. So it's like no matter what the shape of the bottle is, you can pour yourself into that bottle and do pretty well. That's what separates really the high-end guys. So, you know, we had a the 494th at Lake and Heat, the time I was there, they were it was a good squadron. And there were a couple pilots that I thought were dicks. Um, but I rare I, I don't recall flying with those guys. And there were some that were less skilled or less proficient than others, but it was it wasn't a bad working relationship. So in general, um, the guys I flew with in the strike yield community were by and large easier to get along with and mesh with than the guys I flew with in the Phantom community. Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, so just for, for myself and other people who are outsiders, so you're on the squadron, it's like, it's kind of like a football team. You always expect them to be best mates and, you know, like get on with each other, go out for tea, you know, whatever, go for a drink. Was that not the case on a fighter squadron, uh, like in your time? Oh, well, no, no. Um, it depends, right? So it's like any other grouping of guys. There are those guys that you really get along with, you know, and those are there are those guys that you hang around with. Mm -hmm. They may not be the same guys or like the best guys in the squadron, the guys that you really like flying with. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, um, you know, who you can have other things that drive the social aspects of that. Like, what's your deployment schedule? Who are you deploying with? Who are you going on the short trips with? Who do your yeah. spouses hang out with? Um, you know, so mm -hmm. that all affects the, the picture. So it's a fairly tight-knit group of people, by and large. Um, but, you know, there's always guys coming in and guys coming out. There's There's always some churn. And some matches are just better than others. It's even like, you know, on the football team, there are some guys that get along better than they do with other pieces. And remember, everybody in a squadron is a bit of a prima donna, or they wouldn't be there. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I've read that 80% of the people in the squadron think they're in the top 10%. Oh, really? Not, not many people think that. Yeah, and the question you should ask yourself is not why do 80% of the squadron think of that? The question you should be asking yourself is what's wrong with the 20%, 20% that doesn't yeah. think that? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, but I, I have to say that normally the rivalry aspects are limited within a squadron and you kind of focus it on the next squadron over. So if there's two squadrons of the same type on a base or even different types, you know, you always refer to the other squadron as the slack squadron down the street. Right. Um, and, you know, keep your rivalry between the squadrons and not within it. It makes for a happier squadron. And if you have good leadership and good aviators, you you tend to minimize the in the squadron conflicts. Absolutely. Totally agree with that. Um, but uh, can you share maybe one or two memorable stories from your time flying the Strike Eagle? Um, yeah, so I'll share a, a, a non-combat story and a, and a combat story. 
Um, so the non-combat story is one of the things I got to do was do an exchange with the Finns. Oh, uh, nice. So the Finns had just upgraded, gone from big engine MiG-21s to F-18Cs, also big engine F-18Cs. And they didn't want to learn how to, they, they have an air-to-air doctrine. That's all the Finnish aircraft do is air-to-air. They don't have an air-to-ground role with the Hornet, or more accurately, they didn't at the time. So instead of going to the Navy and asking how we tactically employ this Air Force, they came to USAFE commander John Jumper, who sent them to Lake and Eve. So we got to go to a bunch of guys come. It's like, who wants to brief the Finns? I immediately volunteer to brief the Finns when they come visit us because I know where this is going. And so we brief the Finns and then they invite the briefers over to Finland. So to make a long story short, you know, one of the great events was to take the Strike Eagles up the Baltic with an air show configuration. So we're loaded, one jet's loaded with bombs. We brought a light gray with us, um, and then the other jet's loaded with a cargo pod. I'm flying the one with the cargo pod because that has my underwear in it. So that's the air show jet you want to be in. Of course. And we go up to Tampere, 21st Fighter Squadron. We fly in their simulators. We fly in their airplanes. And when the Finns say you're going to fly their airplane, you're going to fly their airplane. So here I am, a backseater, doing one-on-one basic fighter maneuvers against a Finnish Hornet in Finland. And I'm flying it in the backseat. Uh, and there were two two things is that I didn't realize they had a G limiter. So I'm really worried about uh, breaking their new airplane. So I'm not particularly aggressive with the Gs. And the other thing is they fly with a 500 meter floor for air to air. We fly with a 5,000 foot floor. So and uh, what would happen is I'd get my nose low and I'm above the safety altitude and I'd get a face full of green and I'd roll wings level and pull. I'm just a strafe rag. <laughs> and then after, you know, time at the squadron, they actually arranged for us to go up to uh, Oulu for their summer air show and do this. And that was a great time. Plus our jet broke and we got stuck for an extra 10 days. So that was oh, bonus. <laughs> um, so, you know, that's the, that is the quick and dirty, um, uh, non-combat story and the other one is actually my first sam kill and it may be the 494's first sam kill in iraq they might very well have bagged uh sam's before in uh in the balkans but we had a four ship up and we got sambushed and when i say we i mean back cross and i in cores one and we're engaged by an SA-3 site out of, out of nowhere, 28 December 1998. The guys just start shooting at us. Wow. And we get the radar warning before the missiles come off the rail, but it's a launch warning, so it's it's the direction is not good. It's what's called an uncorrelated launch. And so we guess where the SAM battery has to be, and we're in a slicing left turn while I make the defensive call because we're defensive. And by the time the missiles actually come off the rails, we are nose down supersonic um just blowing out of there and so we probably kinematically defeated those shots uh and i end up seeing the missiles detonate high well behind us between the tails because i'm looking over behind us and we circled back around and gathered the forces and came back in and we dropped g we brought a four ship in and we dropped gb12s on an sa3 so we brought the knife to a gunfight but really we brought four knives to a gunfight and the guy could only shoot at us at one at a time, and I don't think they were expecting a shot. So we came sailing in from multiple directions. Everybody was across the target in 17 seconds. 
and we completely we hit the radar with four laser guided bombs and the control van with two more and then we're out of there um so i actually have video online of this whole thing where i reconstruct the engagement um steve had me do that wow and what squadron was that uh, was that with uh, star baby so that was the 494th fighter squadron. yeah um, wow so when that happened i mean just like i'm trying to put myself in your your cockpit here was it like, uh-oh, or you just like automatically like, I know what to do here? I was like, oh, shit. Um, no, so it, it, I've, I've had several moments in, the, in, in aircraft where I get, oh, this is bad. But that was not one of them. That was just wow. the responses were instantaneous. Um, Bat, you know, executed perfectly. I executed the things. I mean, he made the maneuvers. I made the radio call. We had situational awareness. We were out of there. I mean, we did overspeed our bombs. Um, the 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 carriage limit on the the weapons we were carrying at the time is like 0.95 Mach, and we were so far past 0.95 Mach. <laughs> it's not one of our big concerns as to whether or not yeah. we're in the, the carriage limits for the ordnance on board. Um, and we're out of there. It was just a well-trained response. And then, you know, we had practiced this kind of thing and we had planned it. We put the strike together on the fly. We reacted. Uh, we hit the target. We came back out, back out. But I will tell you, at the end of the engagement, it was the first time I really unlocked my hands from the hand controllers. Wow. Because really? now I'm going to change my IFF code as I cross into the Turkish border. and I'm going to do some things that, don't work, that I, I can't do with a hand controller. And my hands are shaking. I am sweeping in adrenaline backwash. Wow. Only time that's ever happened to me. So what was it like for you and the the rest of the crews when you landed? Was it like a kind of high five moment or was it just a quiet, like somber, right, we'll go into the debrief kind of thing? Oh, no, it was upside down, sideways, high fiving at speed. I mean, it was so the first thing that happens, it's hilarious, is after every landing, we had a Turkish airman come out with a checklist to make sure we still had all our bombs on board. Right. And he goes to cores one and we have no bombs and he goes to cores two and they have no bombs and he goes to cores three or is it course three is actually bud one. So he goes to bud one, they have their bombs. Uh, and then he goes to bud two and they don't have their bombs or their wing tanks because they jettisoned them. Yeah. Yeah. So he's walking back and forth because this had never happened to him before. And the CFAC General Deptula, Brigadier General Deptula, met us at the airplane. Um, you know, crews met us. It was it was celebration. And we released the combat tapes to CNN before sundown. Really? Yep. Wow. That's crazy. And w what's the procedure on that? You know, obviously, you go back and sign for your aircraft. You have to say, like, I've dropped this, dropped that. Or what's that, like, a procedure for you, you and the crews? Um, so we're debriefing the whole mission. Um, you know, we're we're actually skipping everything that comes up prior to the first Sam shot, right? So normally you debrief all the, you know, at least you mention that you don't have anything to mention because everything went smoothly. You just jump right into when it for on a combat drop, you jump right into your weapons video. And so we're trying to figure out how what happened, who was shot at whom, what what shot at us, you know, could we have improved anything, whose bombs hit what? Because even at the end, you know, like uh uh, Bud 2 mistook uh, my bombs for his bombs. His were two seconds behind mine on the same aim point. Hmm. Um, and the there was also some confusion in cores 2. I mean, it didn't matter. We cleaned up the SAM site, right? But that's where you actually sort out who did what. 
what hit where um, and and what you actually did and what the timeline was and which battery was it because now you're you're instead of looking at radar images in the targeting pod, you're actually putting all that on a chart and saying, okay, well, it was this site, et cetera. Um, so it was quick, and and we were we were pumped. Um, uh, yeah, did you get much sleep that night? Yeah, I slept like a rock. I never have any problems sleeping. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I'm a, I was on a search team for six years, and I I, I learned. I could sleep any time, any place. I once slept standing up with my arms wrapped around a ladder because um, it was the only place that wasn't muddy. Christ, look at you, look at you. Great story there, Star Baby. But uh, how many hours did you get on the Strike Eagle? So I got 700 and change. Um, I, I got out of the Strike Eagle at the end of three and a half years. which So you know, getting 750 hours in, in three and a half years was pretty good. That was normal. Mm -hmm. um, that was normal for aviators in the time frame. Um, but I didn't cross a thousand hours in the Strike Eagle like I did in the Phantom. We've got some questions from our patrons if you're happy to answer these here, Star Baby. You bet. Right, so this is from Marcel Moser. Would it make sense for the US Air Force to consider an EF uh, F-15E replacing the EF-111? Yes. Um, so Boeing already has plans for them, and I've, I've both seen them and I've commented on them, in which you take the electronic gear from the EA-18, okay, the growler, and you install it on the Strike Eagle. And that, so external jamming pods, but internal receiver arrays, computers, et cetera, with an EWO in the back seat, totally doable. Um, it would make sense. Uh, it's one of the things that uh, if you see that program actually emerge as a funded program, then you'll know the Air Force is taking electronic warfare seriously. They really don't take EW seriously even now. Wow. And I suppose you've answered this, but I have to read it out because it's one of our patrons. Tell me about when you took out uh, a SAM site in the F-15E, but uh, hopefully that's answered it for, the, uh, for you, Joe, there. But, but uh, I, will, got... Go I will say, uh, and I, so that all that combat tape is called Mosul SA-3 Strike. And that's on 10% True, where I deconstruct the whole thing. If anybody's curious, they can go to it and get the whole thing with video, comments, and general snark and black humor. Absolutely. And that'll be linked in the description for this episode. But another one uh, from uh, one here from John, sorry. Uh, could you feel a power difference coming from the F4G? Absolutely. Um, and you actually felt two power differences because the aircraft you train on are a Pratt Whitney 220 engine, um, which is pretty good. I mean, so realize that when you transition, the the F4G had the J79-17G low smoke version of the J79. Mm -hmm. In afterburner, um, that generates about 17,000 pounds of thrust. Um, there's significantly more thrust than that in the 220s, and even more so when you go to the 229s, which the overseas Strike Eagles had. So you could definitely feel it. You can feel it in terms of acceleration. But once you get to higher speeds, so I've actually been faster in a Phantom than I have been in a Strike Eagle, because um, the Strike Eagle I was flying had still tanks and air-to-air -air missiles on it, and you know the CFTs and all the bomb racks and the drag and everything else. Whereas the F4G, when I got to high speed, we were nothing. No tanks, uh, just the internal pylons. But um, 
that was a functional check flight profile and we're smoking. So uh, you could, you, you had an awful lot of thrust in the strike Eagle. Absolutely. And last one from John. Did you ever take cameras up? Uh, sometimes you see F4s and F15s with GoPros in them. So remember that cell phone cameras and GoPros had not been invented yet. And so I, I took occasionally like a little disposable camera in my helmet bag. And maybe I'll remember to take a shot, but you only get shot opportunities when you're not doing something else, right? So, and if you remember, and there's always the danger that uh, somebody is going to, while you're not attending your helmet bag, is going to grab your your camera, unzip their flight suit, and start shooting. And so I remember Steve Madsen, Mad Dog, you know, I went in, I left my helmet bag foolishly in the crew vehicle when I went in to debrief <laughs> after a flight. And somebody said, hey, Mad Dog had your camera. So I know this is going. And sure enough, I get the role developed and I got a bunch of, of of pics of mad dog i didn't really want to see so naturally i put them all in the doofer book next to a ruler um just because right of course of course of course brilliant well uh thanks for answering our patrons questions there star baby but uh, we've got a couple of personal ones just to wrap up this interview so uh do you have any hobbies i do share please okay <laughs> <laughs> So cycling has always been a hobby, um, and it still is. The uh, uh, I was a scuba diver. I mean, I still technically am a scuba diver for many years, but um, I haven't been diving, mostly snorkeling, in many years because it's much easier to go someplace and just bring, you know, a mask and a snorkel, uh, and move on that way. Um, I do archery, both uh, uh, traditional recurve and crossbow. I don't use compounds, and along with that, I also build my own arrows. It, so I've done archery forever, but arrow building, that's a COVID hobby. Wow, um, yeah, totally, so, yeah, totally, yeah. What yeah, do? So, arrow building, yeah, I'll do that, yeah, it's sorted. <laughs> well, I mean, it's... it's Better than banana cake, anyway. It's or banana right, bread. <laughs> right. So it's just something you could do. I like my arrows with four fletchings, and most commercial produce them with three. Because I, I used to speed shoot, and you don't have to... Understand, it doesn't matter which way it's turned if it's got four fletchings. You just knock it and shoot. Um, and, you know, I still read, you know, like anybody else from my age group, I play the occasional computer game, not flight simulators for all you DCS lunatics who are going to say, oh, God, we need to get Star Baby in. No, I don't. And I'm a Mac yeah. user. Um, you know, and kayaking, you know, some other water sports related stuff. So, yeah, I got a bunch of, co of hobbies. You're like bloody G.I. Joe or something, aren't you? Action man. Bloody hell. Um, yeah, well, so not really because I only camp rarely. I mean, my idea of camping is a holiday inn. Um, I mean, after, <laughs> after I went through survival school in the mountains of Washington State in March, I didn't do anything like backpack camping for nice. decades. Yeah. <laughs> Good stuff. Favorite aircraft you have flown? F4, hands down. No question about it. It's just... I mean, the G in particular, but to be a part of aviation history in that fashion with a huge number of phantoms, the long history of the airplane, the guys it flew and the things it did. I mean, there's no question that the Strike Eagle is a more modern war plane, but the phantom is just so cool. One you would like to fly either past or present. Oh, I'd really like to have flown the Tomcat D. 
Okay, even though it didn't have a stick in the back, um, because that's the only fighter of the 1990s that I do not have time in. No way. Yes. So, you know, I've got uh, my 1.3 hours in the F-111. I've got my uh, F-16, Block 50. Um, I've flown the Hornet, you know, Phantoms, Strike Eagles. And a Strike Eagle is just a better Eagle, so I'm just counting those as the same airframe. Yeah, the one I'm missing is the Tomcat. So for completion's sake, it would be an F-14D, because that was the big engine one with the spiffy pulse Doppler radar. Absolutely. Would, would there ever been a chance for you to even get in the backseat of that, or would you have to apply, or like how how would that have worked if you really wanted to get in, uh, get in the seat of one? There would have been, and there was an exchange program. There always is a Navy exchange program that could have possibly gotten me in Tomcats. Mm-hmm. Um, but the I would never have been allowed to go to it out of the F-4G because while it was flying, we were too critical an asset, and it, right. it was very difficult to get people out of. Um, the other thing is, is I'd have had to fly off a boat. And you have to realize that when I was choosing between scholarship offers at the age of 19, I realized that I could have I could have a postage stamp moving around all three axes at the same time at night in a storm in the North Sea. Mm -hmm. Or I could have a runway that's 10,000 feet long, 300 feet wide, surrounded by grass with a golf course officer club and fire department. (laughs) And it was an obvious choice. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) absolutely. But obviously, a lot of people know you from 10% True, but uh, where else can we find you online? Are you on Twitter, Instagram, anything like that? Um, So I am actually not a social media guy. Right. Uh, The only place you can find me on something that looks like social media, and I'm going to claim it's not, is the 10% True Discord channel, Mm -hmm. um, where we occasionally answer questions or shitpost or whatever else I, I need to be doing at the time. Um. In terms of writing, I'm a contributing editor at a website called War on the Rocks, which is actually a defense policy site. And I have a lot of articles on that. And otherwise, I mean, if you search, if you can spell Petruca and you can search for Star Baby Petruca, you're going to find things that I've written scattered all over the Internet. Because for a time frame, uh, when I was in the chief strategic studies group in the Air Force, it was actually my job to write and publish articles. It was great. And I had a lot of freedom about doing it. I do it less now uh, because it takes a lot of time. And it's way easier to get on and do a, a, a cast on YouTube than it is to sit down and write. Because I do a lot of writing on my day job. Uh, and there's only so much time. Plus, you know, I'm under pressure to get some books out. So is there any books in the works for you then, uh, you know, in the near future? Um, so there is one book that is likely to, um, at least uh, that I've been asked to write on open source intelligence about the Ukraine, the latest phase of the Russia-Ukrainian war. And so I, I'm working on that. And there is my book, which in theory has been in production for a couple of years. But the reality is I've done the introduction. I'm still on chapter one. Um, That's a start? I mean, I have a structure for it. I know where I'm going. I know what I'm talking about. There are some things that I will put in the book that will never end up on a, a, a YouTube podcast because my mom watches these, mm-hmm. but she's not going to read the book. So yes. what the book gets, and aside to a whole bunch of other stupid little issues, is it gets things I'm not telling mom. Got ya. Got ya. Absolutely. That would be an interesting title. 
Oh, that, that's a great title. Yeah, keep that one in mind there, Star Baby. But uh, yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the channel and, you know, sharing a bit about your uh, flying career. But yeah, thanks very much, mate. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for the invitation. I really appreciate it. And it was awfully nice of you to, to reach out and say, yeah, I'll put this dude on my show. <laughs> Absolutely. Cheers, Matt. <laughs>